Welcome to the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE, and this week we are exploring the somewhat complex relationship between social media and democracy and asking the question, what if Hitler had access to my Facebook data? Fantastical, you might say. Unlikely, you might add. But it's said that today's secret services and big data companies possess much more data about us than were needed to run totalitarian states in the past. So let's study this further. What would happen to our personal data were it to end up in the wrong hands? What would the consequences be for us as individuals and for society were it to be misused? In fact, China has already started ranking citizens with a social credit system or citizen score to be fully implemented by 2020, which would penalize or reward citizens for their actions. This raises alarm bells and begs the question, can democracy as we know it survive big data and artificial intelligence? With me to explore these questions is Mark Johnson, founder and CEO of the Risk Management Group. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a cyber tip of the week. But for now, here is Mark addressing some misconceptions about privacy and social media. The problem with privacy as a, as a concept in social media is that it's almost exclusively about the privacy you want to enforce with respect to other users looking at you, okay? uh, visitors to the site and your friends. It's not about privacy uh, as it exists between you and a social media service provider. They will have everything. And a lot of people don't realize that and they think if they've set their privacy settings up, Facebook doesn't know X, Y, Z. Facebook knows everything and Facebook still uses everything. They may not give that data away um, in a form that can be linked directly back to you but they'll still exploit it. And in fact, they'll do more than exploit it. It is their capital. And they call it identity capital. So what we're doing is surrendering our personal information, giving it to large organizations who then build value on the basis purely of that information. What sort of information? Well, it's not just the, the, the pieces of data that we enter, such as our name and potentially our location and dates of birth and so forth. It's the things that we do, it's the habits we have, the likes we like, um, the locations we visit, the, the network of friends we have and how what we do correlates with what our friends do and whether or not we're an influencer, whether we can be influenced um, and how we should be targeted for marketing. Uh, so all of these are, are extremely valuable pieces of information that we generate without realizing it and which are then exploited. Talk to me more about this exploitation. What do you mean by that? Well, they're exploited um, in the first instance for marketing purposes. So they become extremely valuable, supposedly valuable data sets. Of course, their value is based on the assumption that they're accurate. A lot of people have false profiles. A lot of people um, conceal um, the things they do online. And therefore, I have some doubts myself about the validity of some of the data sets. But, but on, on superficially... They're extremely valuable as a marketing resource, but they're also valuable to uh, investigators uh, for, for good. Um, when people, police, are, for example, investigating crimes and they need to get social media, but they're, they're, they're of value to other investigators, for example, um, hostile rogue states or um, fraudsters, uh, cyber criminals, um, angry ex-spouses. You know, these are all uh, people who can and do use data for for negative purposes, and we're very exposed to all manner of threats that we don't fully appreciate. The term digital fascism has been used. Yes. Uh, 
to, to describe what's currently happening. Do you think that's too harsh an expression? I think that... I'm not going to say it's too harsh. I think that it's possibly overstating the problem in the sense that I see our habits online as potentially facilitating totalitarianism or fascism in the future. Um, I don't see digital fascism at play at present, but I certainly think there's a danger. And I think that... Um, so it depends how you define it. But mm. if you're thinking about the state, I don't think we're at that point yet. If you're talking about the power of a large organization and its absolute control over us uh, as users, um, I don't know if it's fascism. It's probably just capitalism in its purest form. Um, and we'll go back to the phrase identity capital. I think that's where the focus is. So I don't think they're focused on control. I think they're focused on exploitation of the information. Mm -hmm. Because they, they say that like today's big data companies and secret services have much more data about us than, than were needed to run totalitarian states. Yes. So just asking that, that punchy question, what if Hitler had access to your Facebook data, for instance? Well, absolutely. This is the point. So, so, so you know, I'm comfortable with, I'm not comfortable with, but I accept the reality of my data being out there, uh, living in a democratic state and being protected to some degree, by the state, um, by regulation. Um, yes, but if the, if the nature of the state changed, then that's where the real dangers lie. Uh, and as you say, you know, if Hitler had had access to Facebook, you know, what would he do with that? Well, he, he would, it would remove the fundamental, the key defense of any citizen in a totalitarian state, which is anonymity. And what you can do with uh, social data and big data is to de-anonymize the information. So you can take one small piece of information like an address or a location and a, a username, which isn't necessarily related directly to the person or relatable to the person. But you can then, you can then explore that. And you can look at the web of connections. You can look at, as I say, the likes and the, the visits to various sites. You can look at location um, updates. You can look at other sources, Google, the Twitter, and marry them all together. And with that data set, you can then start to zoom in and and de-anonymize the user and, and identify with a fair degree of certainty who was actually responsible for a particular post. And, and that is exactly what the, the fascist state uh, and the Soviet communist state um, uh, did. And, and they did it in fairly structured ways. Um, they had databases. They weren't electronic, but they had large databases that they cross-referenced data and they, they de-anonymized um, people suspected of resistance, and uh, and they executed them. And uh, I'm sure that Hitler would have loved to have access to the Facebook database. Uh, it is interesting just looking at some of the sort of features of a, of a fascist society. I mean, if you think of the mass surveillance and uh, propaganda and censorship, and the one that's interesting is the forced conformity. Cause now we're aware of so much of our data being out there, we're sort of now self-censoring. Yes, absolutely. I self-censor. Um, I really think before I like a topic on LinkedIn, for example, and I ask myself what message I'm sending to my network on LinkedIn by liking this item, even though I, I do like it personally. But I don't necessarily want people to know that I like it. So, so there's certainly a degree of that. What it also does is it, it causes people to create two or more online personas. There's an interesting statistic out there, actually, which uh, Facebook released earlier this year. 
and um, two statistics. The first is that they have 2.3 billion users. And the second is that last year they deactivated 500 million fake accounts, which represents almost a quarter of their current user base. And I think I'd be surprised if they've found even the majority of fake accounts from the anecdotal evidence I have. I think there are a lot more to be found. So people have, so that 2.3 billion is made up of legitimate accounts and duplicates, and sometimes a third account. And people will have the one main account for showing to an employer, for example, or the police, and then another one for their family, and a third one for the stuff they really do, and the opinions they really have with a fake name and a, a hotmail email address and no date of birth or any of that information. Um, which, which speaks, again, to the question of the value of this data. But um, I think that's the direction people are going in. Rather than conforming, they're appearing to conform with one, with one persona online and then being non-conformist with another persona online. How do you feel about this? I think that, um, I think it's ironic. Um, I have mixed views because, when, because I, um, my business is about trying to deliver cybercrime awareness to people and I'm a, I'm a fraud investigator. So the fact that you can sign up for a persona online without identifying yourself flies in the face of common sense and security principles. But on the other hand, the fact that you can sign up for a persona without identifying yourself is a, a guarantee of freedom of speech and um, is the only thing between the user and the totalitarian state you mentioned. So it's a difficult one to answer. Let's flip it around. They talk about manipulation and propaganda. Really, how manipulated can we be? How can our behaviours be manipulated? Yes, yeah, so I suppose you're referring in part to the, the election hacking sagas. Um, I, I was always a little bit sceptical about that. I'm sceptical on a number of levels. First of all, the, we speak about Cambridge Analytica and what happened there and the, the, the 5,000 data points they claim to have on, on voters. Um, I'd love to see those 5,000 data points because I don't believe they exist. I don't think there are 5,000 data points to be had on most people. Uh, I think that's an exaggeration, if, if not an outright misstatement. Um, falsehood, I should say. Um, but that's a personal opinion. Um, the second is the question of whether you can really use that information to influence people. If you identify me as a Trump supporter, what are you going to do? You can send me pro-Trump material, because you know I'm a Trump supporter, um, which makes no difference. Or you can send me Obama material as a Trump supporter, which is unlikely to make any difference. So the only, the only really useful people are the ones supposedly in the middle. But when you say they're in the middle, what you're really saying is you haven't been able to establish whether or not they're Trump or Obama supporters because they haven't posted anything to tell you. So they may not be in the middle at all. So you have a big unknown there and you're basically sending, and what material are you going to send them? You know, um, is it going to be anti-Obama or pro-Trump? And, you know, you don't know anything about these people and they're in the middle because you have a lack of knowledge about them. So you, so really, you take the story about 5,000 data points. The 5,000 data points, if it exists, allows you to identify the people at the, the, at the edges of the spectrum. And where you have fewer data points, you, those are the people you need to target, but you don't know anything about them. But you know maybe about their friends. You might, but I'm really... I'm not convinced. And people looked at this in some depth and, 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 and shared the skepticism. And I think, I think it's been um, overplayed, overstated. There's certainly a danger, but I'm not convinced that anybody changed any outcome in any election through the use of social media data. Just don't buy that.
And I don't think the populace at large is that easily uh, influenced and that gullible. There are individuals, of course, but uh, in general, I think we're bright enough to, to work our way through that. Can this data collection be benevolent? Do you see it being for the greater good? I, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I actually said the other day that so much data has been exposed that the, the best thing we could do now would be to publish everything. Because statistically, the chances of a hacker picking your name or my name out of a list of 7 billion are really, really small. And if we published everything um, and then had uh, an insurance scheme funded by the world's governments to protect victims of fraud linked back to the fact that everything's been published, um, we'd spend a lot less money on security than we do today trying to protect people who've already been exposed through breaches. Um, you just, just swamp the market with data and punish the fraudsters severely and protect the consumer. Governmental and corporate responsibility for protecting consumers. And, and you can fund that with taxation of the data collectors. So what do you think we need to do? We've got the individual and then we've also got nation states, governments. Yeah, I think the, so. there's some underlying issues. Um, yes, we need to establish a better benchmark around so having established uh, certainly in the EU that you know data is important that it must be protected and, and there are certain principles around that and we need to have for example a good example is security and and, uh, and privacy by design and default but what is that so what do you mean when you say that what 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 should an organization be doing in practical terms in in, in terms that can be audited and terms that can be tested in court if they fail we need to define all of that much more clearly and set really um, well-worded benchmarks for security. And even the standards out there, you know, like the ISO 27000 series and so forth, they don't get, they don't give you that meat on the bone. They don't tell you what to go and do at your desk now. It's all principles, principles, principles. And we need specifics. We need to say, if you go into an organization that's had a data breach and they haven't done, I've got a list of only eight things. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They've failed. That's, that's not due diligence. And they're, by default, culpable. Okay, um, so we need to get to that point. We need a, a, a you know a set of rules similar to the road code. So I see the internet as a as a as a network like the road network. We've got people responsible for the infrastructure, the traffic lights. We've got people responsible for driving the vehicles. We've got people responsible for maintaining and insuring, and we've got manufacturers who have responsibility in terms of delivering safe products to be driven on the road and safe petrol to go into the tanks. Everybody has the clear responsibilities. If I swerve and Hit a pedestrian, it's my fault. If my car just explodes when I'm driving it, it's not my fault, probably. It's somebody else's fault as long as I've done my MOT, etc. We don't have that on the internet. We, it's a complete wild west. So we need something akin to that for the internet. The internet, however, is an issue. The internet is not secure. The internet was not designed to be a secure system. The internet was not designed for us to use. The internet was intended for a very small group of elite users, and there was no expectation that this would become popular with the mass. So I actually think in the absence of Net 2.0, there is no real solution. I think in the absence of Net 2.0, which is a secure, a new secure internet, which built from the ground up for security, with authentication and access and procedures for removing people and denying access in certain many cases. Um, without that, uh, we're just going to have to live with the risks we have. And uh, which is behind my remark that perhaps we should just publish all the data and, and use insurance as our main um, 
line of defense. I mean, on one hand, it all looks a bit gloomy. You've got the tech giants vying for world domination, and you've got populism on the rise. And, and on the other hand, the conversations are being had yeah. about transparency. Regulators are beginning to think about you know wh what needs to be monitored, what needs to be changed. So, looking at the future, how positive are you? Well. So big picture, you know, we, we never needed an internet or um, social media to, to cause a civilization to crumble um, or to trigger genocide or uh, to stir up uh, fear of immigrants or any of these issues. Those, those have always been with us. And I think those are just social realities that I, I wouldn't even say the internet exacerbates them. I think it, it's, it's the current facilitator. But in the past, we, had, we were able to print, you know, leaflets and put them stir up just as much anger, you know, after the fire of London, rumors were sufficient to, to get people lynched. So, so um, I don't think the internet's responsible for that. That's, that's a wider societal problem. Um, I am somewhat gloomy and pessimistic. I think that um, we're in a, an extremely dangerous time. I see lots of things happening, things being said that remind me of the 1930s. Not remind me, because I wasn't alive, but hark back to the 1930s. And um, You mean in just comments that are being made? Yes, and the attitudes that are being uh, exposed, I think they've always been there, but there's been this veneer that we've forced to adopt for the last few decades. And, uh, and now, you know, post-Brexit, for example, in the UK, it's suddenly apparent um, on the street, on the bus, on the train yesterday, I heard remarks being made about a Polish person who was having a conversation by other people on the train just because the person was speaking Polish and they were making negative remarks and along the lines of, I bet they're complaining about the, the state of accommodation on the farm and that sort of thing, which I, you just wouldn't have heard uttered two years ago. Um, and so things like Brexit and, and, uh, and other election results around the world have um, empowered people to express opinions that they've always held but have kept silent. Um, and, and that's worrying and the failure of the state to deal with that um, much more proactively is worrying because it leads you to wonder whether there are people, you know, in positions of authority who share those views. And if you if you throw into the mix a financial crisis or uh, an internet failure, this is where the internet is actually important. I think in this story, um, if you if you lose the internet for a week, we're only three days of or is it three meals away from from um, the collapse of civilization? Somebody wrote some years ago. And I think that's very true. And uh, technical failure of the internet triggered perhaps by malware, by cybercrime, by state actors. Um, that's what would plunge us into Holocaust 2.0. Thanks to Mark Johnson for raising some important points about data and democracy. Hopefully we won't plunge into the depths of Holocaust 2.0 and there's hope for the future. Well, moving on, it's time for our Cyber Tip of the Week. If you're getting rid of your mobile phone, do a factory reset before you hand it on. If you're getting rid of a laptop, tablet or PC, then wipe the data using software such as DBAN. That's all we have time for this week. Tweet us on at Tice for any topic suggestions or questions you may have. We always love to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.